love smoothies, but when you buy them, I don't always know what's in them. Some of them have extra sugar and syrups and not a lot of fruits and vegetables. With Blendjet 2, I can make my own smoothie in no time and I know exactly what goes in it. I put lots of fruits and vegetables to keep me healthy. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can make a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even have a margarita at the beach. It is small enough to fit into a cup holder, but powerful enough to break through ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is also whisper quiet, so you can make your morning shake without waking up the whole household. It lasts about 15 blends, and then you can recharge it with a USB. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. You just add a drop of soap in some water and you blend it together and you're good to go. It comes in a variety of different colors and different patterns, although I do love my black one. Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. Be sure to use the promo MYTREE12 to get 12% off and free two-day shipping. Hello and welcome to the Love and Compassion podcast with Giselle. We believe that love and compassion have the power to heal our lives and our world. Don't forget to like and subscribe for more amazing content. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how someone who was so devoted to spreading hate can turn their lives around to focus on spreading love and compassion instead. Our guest is an international speaker, change maker, and the author of the book, The Cure for Hate. He is also a father of two and co-founder of the not-for-profit organization Life After Hate. He has made it his mission to help people leave hate groups and cultivate greater compassion. an attorney. In his previous life, he played a pivotal role in white supremacy in Canada. Welcome to the show, Tony McAleer. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I want to begin by saying just how much I loved your book. It resonated so much with me. And I, I found myself kind of giggling at the fact that I thought to myself, here I am an immigrant Latina, right? Immigrant to Canada who is resonating so much with a message from a white male who was, you know, background is from the UK. And I chuckled at the fact that I thought, you know, your formal you would have been kind of amazed by that, right? Maybe? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it it's just sort of a testament to, you know, on the on the surface, it's, it's something that's, my past is something that's so horrific and out there. Yet be, behind that is a very human story. And, you know, I wrote it with through the lens of probably a thousand hours of one-on-one -on -one and group counseling where I really did a deep journey inwards to understand why I ended up like that, why I chose to do the things that I chose to do and what I got from them. And, you know, when, when I speak to people that are leaving movements behind that, uh, at Life After Hate, which I left in, in 2019, but there remain a great organization. There, there's very human stories behind the sort of tabloid cover labels that we, that we put on people. And I think that holds true for people mired in addiction or yeah. other areas of life where they're, where they're struggling. And it's easy to just read the tabloid cover that's presented to us and pass judgment. But when we get to know the stories behind it, they're very human stories and they're, and they're themes that connect, connect all of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's so true. And so wise. I was wondering if I know in your journey, your childhood played a key part in you eventually kind of joining the white supremacy movement. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and kind of how it led you to that journey? Sure. I grew up in a very affluent middle-class neighborhood in Vancouver and went to all-boys private school. My father was a doctor. We were immigrants from England. I came when I was two in 1969. And I went without any sort of material wants and needs. My father was a great provider and that was his love language, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. be, a, be a provider. As a little boy, who didn't get to see him very often because he was a workaholic. The thing I craved most is time and attention was in very short, short supply. And when I was 10, I walked in on him with another woman and this man that I so idolized and, and worshiped, you know, I think there's probably many of your listeners can relate to the time when the God fell off the pedestal, you know, in the, in their own childhoods. And that really, shattered my trust, not just in his authority, but in all the authority figures in my life. I didn't trust them anymore. And I was angry and it was a whole flood of emotions. And I went from being an A and a B student to a C and a D student. And by the next year, the teachers at the school, all boys Catholic school, tried all kinds of carrots to motivate and inspire me. None of them worked. So they resorted to the stick. And with my parents' encouragement, they gave me a deal and that deal was if I didn't get an A or a B in ma major tests and assignments, I was to be hit on the rear end with a yardstick. And, you know, I think even to this day, as, as I think back to those times in the office over and over and over again, where I was getting hit on the rear end with the, with the stick, I don't think I've ever felt more powerless than I did in, in that office. And I went from listening to Queen and Elton John to the Clash and the Sex Pistols and got into the punk scene because I, that's where my my anger resonated and found a found a home with other angry angry kids and people who didn't feel that that they belonged. And I just want to be clear here: I don't blame anything on my childhood. Mm -hmm. Share with you these things from my childhood so you understand the lens through which I made these these choices and what I got from initially joining the with the with the skinheads and then later becoming a leader and, and into more serious organized white supremacist groups is I got power when I felt powerless. I got attention when I felt invisible and I got acceptance and community when I felt unlovable. And it's it's these sort of emotional drivers, these vulnerabilities that are created through adverse events in our childhood or traumas or or whatever that create the vulnerabilities that make the ideology seem so seductive and creates the vulnerabilities that people like me, when I was a leader and recruiter became quite adept at exploiting. Yeah. The, the, the common misbelief is it's all about the ideology. And if we could just stop or change the ideas in the person's head or stop them from reading this or make them read that, you know, we can change everything, but while the ideology plays a significant role, these deeper, these deeper psychological drivers play a far, far greater role. And, and it, these things become about identity mm -hmm. and they become about their the deeply emotional yeah. connections. It's one thing to convince yeah. a person that what they believe is wrong. It's a whole other kettle of fish to convince a person that who they are is wrong. Yeah. I mean, what you said is so spot on. The first part I want to address is, which I really, really, really resonated with me because I remember 
the day when I felt my parents, like when I saw them fall off the pedestal and I thought, oh, these are just humans. <laughs> and I had much the same experience in that I stopped trusting the adults in my life. I thought, okay, I can't trust you. So therefore I'm going to be making decisions for myself. And so I think I felt that part of the book. And so I thought that was so pivotal. The other part that I really thought was really important is that you make clear in your book that it's not like you sought to be in a world of hate. You, you didn't seek to be in a, in a world of hate. You made a series of choices, which led to beliefs and thoughts, which then encrusted into an identity. And so what you mentioned about, you can't just tell people that their ideas are wrongs because it becomes so enmeshed in who they are. What did you find or what helped you kind of shift away from that identity of, of aligning to the beliefs of, of white supremacy to one where you could actually start to soften it? It started with the birth of the birth of my children. And there's a, a couple aspects to this, you know, the birth of my daughter when I'm standing there in the delivery room and this, I get handed this little baby girl and, mm -hmm. you know, she's got scrunchy face and she's like that mm -hmm. and opens her eyes for the first time. And, and, and my face is the first picture her brain's going to take. And, and I connected to another human being for the first time since I couldn't remember when, because, you know, as we go through childhood, you know, if I think back who little Tony was, you know, at the age of three or four, I was this bright, curious a little mischievous, stubborn, sensitive, open to the world little guy. And as we go along, we learn it's not safe necessarily to be sensitive or open to the world or, or curious. And we put on armor and we put on masks and we shut ourselves down in order to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And I was so cut off from my heart you know, and, and living purely in ego and, and, you know, the ego should never be driving the bus, <laughs> right? It's, it's okay. True. It's okay. Chirping from the back seat, yeah. know, giving suggestions of where to go. The heart should always be driving the bus, but when the ego is driving the bus and it's not tethered to the heart, it can take us through some very strange and awful, awful places as it did with me. But with my, with my children, I, you know, I connected, you know, for the first time since I could remember when I, I began to accept that I was making decisions with someone else other than me as the primary factor. And, you know, the beautiful thing about children's love is it's, it's infectious mm -hmm. and it's safe to love a child, you know, and at the age of two and three and one, they're not capable of shaming. They're not capable of ridicule. They're not capable of rejection that, that comes in the teen, <laughs> teen years. But, <laughs> But in, in, in this moment, it became safe for me to allow the thawing to begin and to allow myself to feel and, and to begin the slow movement from my head into my heart. And my son, who was born 15 months later, I, you know, between the two of them, I got to parent them the way that I always wanted to be parented. I had all the, the time and attention that I had craved as a child. I offered offered them. I probably wasn't as good a provider as my, as my <laughs> father, but, but they turned out pretty good anyways. But mm -hmm. it was very cathartic to be able to heal those wounds, you know, and, and repair, repairing them through, through doing that with my, with my children. And so they taught me that my very, although I didn't quite know it or understand it at the time, they taught me my very first lesson in, in compassion. They gave me my mm -hmm. first taste of compassion and, and, mm -hmm. you know, what's, What's incredible is they they 
couldn't speak the word compassion. They had no idea what it meant. Mm -hmm. They didn't say, oh my God, that's too hard. I can't be compassionate with that person. And there was none of that, none of that limitation in, in their minds. And they just, you know, they, they loved me. And and when we're compassionate with someone, we hold a mirror up and allow them to see their reflection, mm-hmm. the humanity reflected back at them when they can't see it themselves when they when they look in the mirror. And, and that's what my children did for me. They they saw, I could see in their eyes and in their faces and their expressions, they saw this magnificent human being. And I didn't see that when I looked in the mirror. You know, that's that's the the the, the problem with all these childhood events and traumatic events, and it doesn't have to be sort of a childhood event. It, it, it can be a catastrophic event around you. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily that we have to, you know, suffer abuse or anything like that, but it leaves us with, with the feeling that we're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not pretty enough. We're less than, we're unlovable, we're weak, we're powerless. And we go out into the world living our lives in reaction to that. And, and we put on masks to pretend ourselves to be powerful and we, we become overachievers or perfectionists in order to hide what we believe, the false belief of what all our flaws are. Mm-hmm. And, and that leads us to a, an alienation of the self, to a dehumanization. And, and I truly believe the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mere reflection of our own internal disconnection and dehumanization. And what my children did with me through that compassion is began the process of rehumanization. You know, if, if toxic shame is the root of a whole spectrum of antisocial outcomes for a person, whether they project it onto others through various forms of violence, mm-hmm. or whether they do it to themselves through various forms of self-harm, that compassion is the rehumanizing part of that, that dehumanization process. And, and that, that really started it for me. And another piece was when they were two and four, I became a full-time single father. And in the 90s, you know, it's not fair that it was that way, but single dads were like unicorns. Yeah. And I got, I was able to transition. That became my identity. You know, you know, so-and-so is a single dad. And, and I, I got acceptance and approval and community with my family. And I got all of the things that I'd been craving that I saw it in the in in the white supremacist movement through the illusion of those things I actually got for real and and that sort of became my identity so it was you know the challenge with helping people leave these movements behind is when you go into these movements you excommunicate yourself from friends family and society and you go that's okay I, I, I'm getting I'm going to get my needs met over here I wasn't getting it there and then when we realize that it's all an illusion and it's all false promise and we become disillusioned when we go to leave that those movements behind our old friends family society aren't waiting for us with open arms because we've violated the trust and that that trust has to be rebuilt and and there's this part in the middle that they call the void where you have no identity you have no social circle you know you if you've left that behind and you haven't established a new one you're in this place where it's and, and without that identity, it's a very lonely place to be. And it's often where people go back because the perception mm. and the pain of the loneliness seem to the mind seems greater than the pain of the dysfunction. And we go back to that toxic, uh, toxic place. And Life After Hate, we created a community in that, in that void to help people transition to the other side and reclaim their humanity and, and live compassionate lives in the, in, in the community. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. 
You said so many key things. I think the first thing that I want to comment on is the children are such a gift, right? Like I, I do believe that our, at our very core, we are loving and compassionate, but then we learn all of these things and create all of these barriers that, that kind of prevent us from being loving to ourselves and other people. And so, you know, I was, when I was reading your book, it really struck me that, you know, you had such, such a sense of belonging that you said that, you know, somebody had asked you, like, when did you lose your humanity? And you said, I didn't, I traded it for acceptance and approval. I was wondering, was nothing left. yeah, until it was nothing left. I was wondering if you could comment on the way that extremist movements in, in, in you know, like extremism uses the language of love and compassion and belonging to attract people to that to that kind of ideology well they i mean these are these are primal human needs mm -hmm. you know as, as human yeah. beings we we need to belong we're social we're social animals and you know they they use language they use the language of grievance mm -hmm. to, to drive a wedge between them and society and then they exploit these feelings of the need to belong and and they create a belonging around grievance and that's what makes these movements so so toxic mm. and and so dangerous you know because the it you be then get trapped in the identity of grievance and and one of the things i've learned through all of the counseling that not only I went through, but that I observed in others in, in group and stuff like that, was that the identity of victim is the most disempowering state a human being can be in. It's not to say people aren't victimized and, and that people shouldn't recognize that they've been victimized. But when we say, I am a victim and the world is happening to me and I have no power, when we take on the identity of victim, it, it's very disempowering. And and it's easily manipulated. Mm -hmm. And, and in this world, there's, you know, different, different, you know, it's often opposing narratives of, of victim grievance that that is manipulated and, and leads people to a place where, you know, if the if the solution doesn't include compassion, <laughs> it, 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 it's a false solution, it, it can't bear anything but but further further misery. Yeah. And in a world of victimhood, there has to be, because we live in a world of duality, there has to be a perpetrator, right? Yep. And so we can continue to give energy and attention to that idea of victim, perpetrator, victim, perpetrator. And it continues that dichotomy, whereas compassion really has no other, there's no duality in it. It's like the feeling is more, less dualistic, I would say, or pitting one against the other. What would you say your definition of compassion is? Compassion is for me is, is, you know, the desire to alleviate or taking action to alleviate the suffering, suffering of another. So, or others as a, as a group, that's why I say, you know, things that are so much rooted in, in victim identity aren't really about alleviating that suffering. It's about keeping the suffering in place. And yeah. that's why without that compassion component, it, it's, it's problematic and and, you know, and I talk in the book about radical compassion and in that, you know, there's, there's the need to, or the, the drive to alleviate the suffering of, of, of others in a radical compassion. I, there's three components I talk about. One is that your practice of compassion must take you outside your comfort zone. Mm. 
-hmm. you know, in this age of extreme polarization, we are not going to solve this by tiptoeing around it. We're not going to solve this from within our comfort zones. Mm -hmm. And and that requires courage. And, and I'll, I'll, I, we can get into the three C's in a little bit. The second piece is it's not just enough to alleviate the suffering of individuals or a group, but we must also take a social activist role and look at the environment which gives rise to or supports the suffering and, and work to alleviate that. And the third, and it's the most important lesson that I ever learned about compassion, I think it's the most missed component of compassion is that is developing compassion for self and that the journey inwards to understand and have compassion for self because we can't have compassion for others until we develop it within ourselves and I think that's one of the the, the bravest most courageous journeys a human being can do is is to turn inwards and take a look at at the whole of us that's inside the good and the bad and and learn to love and, and accept it. And I had a great powerful coach and mentor and guide to help me through that process. And the more I understood myself, the more I understood others. Mm -hmm. And as I started to understand others more and see, see them through that lens, it gave me glimpses back in, into myself. It was like this positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And again, I say the level to which we dehumanize other other human beings is a mere reflection of our own internal dis dehumanization and disconnection. Mm -hmm. That's the, the negative feedback loop. The, the polarity of that is, is the opposite. The, you know, we humanize people as we humanize ourselves and as we humanize ourselves, we humanize, we humanize people. And yeah. that's why the, the, the answer has to be compassion, you know, because I, as I talked earlier about toxic shame and, and that internal disconnection, compassion is the antidote to shame. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when we can, we can help people get to that, that place, it's, and it's, it's exponential, you know, if we want to give compassion to others, we have to mine it from within ourselves. And mm -hmm. the more we mine it from within ourselves, the more we exponentially expand our capacity to give compassion to others. And I think that's a really a really important point because I think if we if we're compassionate for everybody else but not ourselves that's not about compassion that's about ego it's about being seen to be compassionate mm -hmm. if we're compassionate to ourselves and nobody else that's not compassion either that's narcissism mm -hmm. and we have to hold we have to hold both at the at the same time in a healthy way and and I think at that point it it, it becomes a truly powerful powerful force and not just in our own lives, but in the lives of other people. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I loved how you said in the book that it was almost a social responsibility for you to be compassionate and loving towards yourself because you loving yourself translated to you being loving for other people. For us, it's akin to, you know, you fill up your bucket and then you give to people from your overflow, not from your reserves, right? Instead of trying to manipulate people or manipulate their energy or need them to give you something you can, you flow from within. Um, exactly. And so I thought that was really, really important. And it also showed the interdependence in all things, right? So what I do for myself, I do for others. And what I do for others, I do for myself. In this journey that I absolutely discovered that we are all, yeah. all connected and, and intertwined. And when I was in that world, of white supremacy, I didn't see any connection anywhere. We were individuals. We were groups of individuals trying to battle for the scarce resources from other groups of individuals. And everything was, 
you know, the ego sees the world through separation, right? Mm -hmm. And the heart Mm -hmm. sees things through, you know, connection. I often say to people, I said, well, you know, listen to someone who's reading from a religious scripture. If they're talking about us versus them and pagans Mm -hmm. and infidels and heathens and, and, and separation, you know, they're talking from their, their head, their ego. Mm-hmm. But if it's about coming together and community and love and compassion, forgiveness, mm-hmm. you know, they're, you know, they're talking about the same book from, mm-hmm. from their heart. You can, yeah. you can listen to people to hear whether they're head centered or, or heart centered. Yeah. You actually, in the book, you talk about doing a lot of different things that you weren't proud of. Can you tell our audience, how did, how challenging was it for you to be compassionate towards yourself, considering all the things that, you know, you talked about toxic shame, you know, how hard it was it for you to deal with that toxic shame through compassion? It was really difficult because I it was involved in lots of street violence, you know, in the book, you know, there's a gay bashing I write about, you know, that, you know, I remember with my you know, with my mentor at the time, I was, it was doing a program on, on public speaking of all things. And he <laughs> said, and we all had these ideas in our heads of what we were going to talk about. And, and he said, I want you to think of the most shameful thing you've ever done. And then Ooh. I thought, I go up on stage and tell the story. Wow. And you know, that was the story Courage. where we had chased the gay man into a construction site and he he hid under a, like a crawl space. And, uh, you know, I think we were 17 at the time and like kids at the lake, we threw stones into the darkness and, you know, every third or fourth stone elicited a, a yell of pain and terror from, from this young man. And when I remember when I told it on front of this class of 30 people and I couldn't feel it, I, I was disconnected from it. I couldn't, I told it sort of as a third party Mm-hmm. narrative and he said no do it again you're not feeling it do it again and then it was okay now I want you to tell the story from his perspective mm-hmm. no you didn't feel it do it again and I think for two hours you know I told this story that took six or seven minutes to actually tell mm-hmm. over and over and over again until I could connect to it and feel it and and feel the shame in my role in it and be able to express that shame and really that compassion and, and forgiveness for, for myself was one of the hardest things I had to overcome because I know all the things that I, that I didn't said, you know, I think I probably did more damage with my words than I did with my fists and and boots, but it, it was hard. And I remember reading, the the Dalai Lama a book on compassion as I was you know, trying to deepen my understanding and he said you know the more I have compassion and forgiveness for myself the more I diminish my capacity to do harm in the world mm-hmm. and that really clicked for me and I realized I'm approaching this all wrong right I'm not I shouldn't be having compassion and forgiveness for myself because I deserve it I was sort of sort of getting over <laughs> my Oh, it was, it's not about me. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I was hung up on my, whether or not I deserved it or not. I deserve to have compassion and forgiveness for myself because the world and the rest of society deserves it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I, if I can't have compassion and forgiveness for myself, 
then I'm still going to be a, not a nice person. I'm still going to be a jerk. I'm still going to be oozing harm into the world through words or behaviors or anger or losing tempers or, or, or whatever. And it was once I flipped it around that it's, it's not about me. The world deserves it. Then I was able to get to that, that, that place. It's, I, the me part still put up a bit of a struggle, but I mm. was able to, to get there, but it's that, that paradigm shift was, was key for me. And you mentioned as well that what helped you in your journey was also getting forgiveness and compassion from others, those people that you had harmed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. No, that's, it's, uh, I'd been doing these personal development workshops. So I'd left, I got in the movement about 82, 83, left in 98, was a single father and still lived emotionally dysfunctional life and drank too much and, and stuff like that. And I started a new career as a financial advisor in 2004. In 2005, I was doing these workshops put on by this, this guy named Doc Barron, who he was from England. I was from England. The, you know, I was from Liverpool. He was from Manchester. And we he's about 10 years older and bonded over Monty Python and quirky British <laughs> pop songs in the 80s and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I really connected with them and, and did all those courses about getting out, stepping out of your own way and getting rid of limiting beliefs and dealing with the ego and such. And, and the friend that had introduced us eight months later hands me a gift certificate for my birthday and I get the gift certificate and I open <laughs> it up and, and it's like, ah, oh, great. It's a gift certificate for one-on-one -on -one counseling with Dov. Like, <laughs> That's exactly want, what I wanted, thanks. Yeah, who doesn't <laughs> want therapy for their birthday? <laughs> So mm -hmm. I go in and, and, and the see Dov and, and I'm telling him about why I'm angry at my dad and why I'm angry at my mom and the, the Catholic school I went to and, you know, all sort of all the, the blamey bits you do at the, in your first counseling session. And, and then I thought, do I tell him the rest? Do I tell him about being a skinhead and neo-Nazi and Aryan nations and stuff? And I'm like, mm, I, I'm not sure. Because the reason I was terrified to do that is that when people found out about my past, it usually meant the end of the relationship if not an entire social circle. And this was a relationship I valued. And I'm humming and hawing and I'm staring at the carpet as if it's going to give me some sort of cryptic clue. And he's like, mate, just, you know, we only have an hour here. Just let it out. It's okay. It's safe. And I'm looking around the room like anything but at his eyes. And he goes, look, mate, you look like you're trying to swallow three golf balls. Just let it out. And, and in a sort of great leap of faith i decided to let loose and i told him about skinhead and airy nations and holocaust denial and the more i tell him the more he starts smiling mm -hmm. and the more he starts smiling the more annoyed i'm getting here i am bearing my soul in my first therapy session and and here the guy's like laughing at me and i said like what's so funny he leans in with a big grin on his face and he goes you know i was born jewish right you know i'm like uh. of course the irony, right? And, yeah. I, and I, you know, I sink back in my shame with shame. And here's this man who wants to heal me, wants to see the best for my family and, and the man who loves me. And here I am knowing that I'd once advocated for the annihilation of him and his people. And he said, that's what you did. That's not who you are. I see you. I see little Tony. And with that, I began sobbing and, and, you know, for the first time I felt that somebody saw me and, and, 
And if, if this man could learn to love me, surely I must be able to learn to love myself. And that began a magnificent journey into that self-discovery, that self-inquiry, the healing, going, running towards the pain and the wounds that I'd been running away from my entire life. And that had, had cast a shadow over my entire life and was able to sort of, with his guidance, wade, wade into the muck and, and start to clear it out. Yeah, it's amazing how unconditional love can be so powerful. Just the the witnessing of someone and being there without judgment, without the need for them to be different, just seeing the humanity in someone else is so powerful. And to receive it from someone who we don't feel we deserve it from. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's sort of, you know, doubly powerful. And I, I will say this with a, with, a, with a caveat that I'm not saying for a minute it's, uh, the responsibility of marginalized mm -hmm. communities or people of color to take this on. I'm not saying this should be your first step in your journey of and practice of, of compassion, but I've certainly met enough people who it was the next step for them as, as people of color and marginalized communities that in, in order to step out of their comfort zone and, and, and take their practice of compassion to another level, it was something that they chose to do. And it's an incredible gift should you choose to give it, but I'm in no way suggesting it's an obligation. Yeah. And thank you for mentioning that, because I think that's a really key point. I love what Valerie Carr says about it, which is, you know, obviously, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first, love yourself first. And if you can't do that for other people, like if, if I, as a marginalized person, I'm not the point where I can say to you, Tony, I either forgive you or love you or see you. I can allow other people to get curious about you. I can allow other people to love you. I can allow other people to get to, to, extend compassion to you I don't have to get stuck in that cycle of hate but when I think about how we the systems we've created and our systems reflect our level of consciousness our systems are about separation alienation punishment and in the book you talk about how nobody goes out to become Hitler right like nobody goes out hey I'm going to be Hitler I'm going to be this hateful person and so it's interesting to me what, what that I had read in your book, something that I had reflected on myself. And so I found it like, oh, wow, somebody else believes this, that people blame Hitler, but there was a whole bunch of people that followed him. And the Treaty of Versailles was actually very harsh on Germany. And so it, it really suppressed people. And this is not a justification, but out of that suppression, people desired something else people desire to be to be given to, to and so it sets up the environment where people like hitler could come and, and say i'm gonna like you said with the with the movement i i can give you you know we, we gotta get ours you know we gotta stop being oppressed and so these systems aren't built that we've created aren't built on radical compassion aren't built on on unity they're built on separation why do you think that is like why do you think that we are kind of have created these systems but i mean we tend to blame individuals but don't see kind of the larger context no and and you know there's there's you know politicians of the current age mm -hmm. that people point to and and you know say it's their fault but really they're a symptom yeah you know they're a symptom of of something else and i think under stress we regress Right. And, and I've, I've said to people, you know, 
multiculturalism and tolerance works until you have to compete with your neighbor for a crust of bread in the street. And then all bets, all bets are off. We devolve into tribalism and, and below the tribe is the family or the, you know, the, the community and, and ultimately down to the, down to the individual. And I think, you know, in a, in a more global perspective, there is the ebb and flow the rhythm of polarity back and forth where we go from one mm-hmm. to the other. And, and I, I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful, mm-hmm. right. As much as you know, there's chaos happening in the world. I think, I think the old order is dying. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, you know, Agreed. where winter is here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Agreed. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting, you know, it's like being in the middle of January, you know, we got another month or two of cold weather and then, and then it's spring and, 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 and green, green shoots, but it, winter is never fun. In the book, you talked about how kind of that, that pendulum that happens right between like the, the extremism and how censorship doesn't really work because it's silencing. So what, well, compassion allows us to lean in censorship prevents us from, from really listening to each other how do you think censorship really feeds the kind of movements like the you know like white supremacy well if you if you've got these movements that are you know exploiting a grievance narrative Hmm. further alienating and further disenfranchising those people makes those groups more more attractive and 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 suppression simply simply doesn't doesn't work it makes things more extreme if i can't speak through words then maybe i have to speak through violence I, I, you know the the steam has to escape somehow yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah. i think it's naive to think that that question of speech and i just want to be clear here there's a difference between um you know speech that is promoting violence which is promoting equal acts which is already illegal Mm-hmm. And harassment, because I often see the two conflated that we need to re- limit ideas over here because people over here are being threatened and harassed. I, I think that we need to separate those two. And I don't think censorship works. And I think I, I think we, we go down a slippery slope and, I, and I'm actually shocked at how quick it's moved from hateful speech to now this nebulous disinformation, misinformation and the number of topics that you can get, you know, banned on social media for for speaking about, is rapidly expanding. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a very dangerous and a totalitarian precedent. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I think you know what we resist persists, right? And the more we resist it, it doesn't go away. It just goes covert. Right. And so what we're missing is an opportunity to really lean in and, and have conversations with one another about why people exactly. why, why people believe what they believe. And so it really is a missed opportunity to get better at listening. And, and listening means not not just waiting for my turn to speak. <laughs> That's right. Not, so, not, not thinking about my counter argument so that I can prove that you are right or wrong. So it's listening right. with and, like and compassionate we listen listening. To, we listen to people to, to understand. You know, I think the society conflates listening with validation. I can listen to someone and understand someone. I don't have to agree with them. 
you know, their, their grievance is real to them. It doesn't necessarily mean it's real. It's real to me. And I think that understanding is, is the first step. It's the first foundation in healing. Yeah. And if we want to heal and repair the polarization in society, we have to be prepared to listen to people we don't agree with and try and understand where it is that they're, that they're coming from. Heaping more judgment or calling them names is not going to change, is not going to change anything. So there's, I talk a lot about these days about the three C's. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, you know, I think as, as human beings in the society, we have to practice more of the three C's and three C's are compassion. First of all, courage. You know, I spoke about that. You know, we, we can't do this from inside our, our comfort zones and curiosity. We have to be curious about why we have to be curious about people and, and move beyond the, 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 the tabloid headline label that we, the one dimensional labels that we, that we throw on people and, understand the, the the story if we want to change them we don't do it by telling them something different we do it by listening yeah yeah and we you know it's so interesting that we make these caricatures of people everybody is one-dimensional except ourselves of course we're <laughs> we are more than that i wanted to talk a little bit about vulnerability in men in particular and about true intimacy, how might a fear of being vulnerable lead to a life of hate? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. And I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown. Mm. And, and, and really, when we talk about you know, practices that we've learned at, at Life After Hate and working with people coming from these spaces, it's you know, when we listen to someone air their grievance and we give them a safe space to do so we give them the safe space in which to be vulnerable that's very transformative in and of it of itself and once they realize it's a safe space then they they start to reveal themselves Mm -hmm. and then we can we can work with that but in the absence of that safe space everything is is nailed down and, and 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 shut and in that absence of safe space there there is no place for the heart Mm. and then we find ourselves back in that space of the head the ego driving the bus and the ego is without the heart as a guidance system easily so easily gets itself gets itself lost and and so many of these movements are predominantly male yeah and and there's so much confusion about what healthy masculinity looks like. You know, nobody really defines healthy masculinity. There's, there's only toxic masculinity and nobody, nobody provides a, an opportunity to understand what, you know, what, what's behind the divine masculine. What are the principles? What are the features of the divine masculine? How can we, how can young men embody the divine masculine? How can the divine masculine embrace the divine feminine within, within a person? There's, there's a whole world that needs to be explored and understood and brought into being that gets completely ignored when all we look at is everything through the lens of toxic masculinity. Even some aspects of healthy masculinity are labeled toxic masculinity because they're not divine feminine. You know, there's, mm-hmm. it's a, there's a, a, a distortion. And I think that's an important thing which needs to be unlocked if we're going to usher young men into embracing a healthy identity in masculinity and at the same time embrace that divine feminine so that the, the two are in balance and 
you know, mm. we should be able to go back and back and forth with them. And, and that's what I've learned in Tantra anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And since you mentioned the divine feminine and masculine, obviously there's a spiritual component. Has spirituality been a key in your healing? Absolutely. I, I don't think that you can see the world through the lens of connection. I mean, without it, it being spiritual and, and really spirituality and connection are interchangeable words. Yeah. For me, I, I, I was coaching a women, adult women's soccer team, mm -hmm. and we talked about the four quadrants. Uh, we wanted to have mental health, physical health, emotional health, and connection. What we mm -hmm. really wanted to say was spirituality. Spiritual, yeah. But yeah. that, that, you know, there's so many tripwires and triggers involved with that word. So we replaced it with the word connection and everybody was fine with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's but, funny uh, how people get triggered because they think religion, whereas spirituality right. is right. not religion. And, no, in, in fact, often religion is anti-spiritual. Like the, yeah. it's, it's, it's the opposite. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But that that spiritual component and and understanding that we're all connected, you know that those are all deep deep spiritual beliefs. And I think my the, at the beginning of my journey, one of the most profound things I did, and I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into, but my introduction to meditation was a ten day mm -hmm. vipassana. Yeah. And that was a really profound experience that really, you know, opened the door. And I've been a, a spiritual seeker and and a seeker of crazy wisdom traditions and, and, and such ever, ever since to develop perspective of the nature of who I am and the nature of the universe and the nature of creation and, and where we all fit in it and how we can realize our our highest truest self yeah 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 spirituality has definitely been something that has really helped me heal in my journey it's interesting from this from my perspective in the spiritual perspective the soul cannot be broken so so it really kind of has helped me shift from that belief in good and bad right or wrong because if i cannot be broken other people cannot be broken either and so it helps me move away from that victim perspective and to see myself as a victim and therefore to see you as an oppressor the other thing that it helps me do is it it also helps me see the divinity in you so if i'm part of the of this universal source universe juice <laughs> then so are you but we just forget and so there's only behavior that is in alignment or out of alignment and so i go back to as children our, our very essence is love and compassion. We just want to be loved and to love. And so, but we create all of these barriers. And so going back to our true essence is really the return to that love and compassion. And so I find that that helps me forget, like it has helped me forgive people that I, I felt needed to forgive in myself when I was really hurtful. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. And, you know, I've had people say to me, I'm not buying it. You know, people never change. You know, you, <laughs> and, and I'm saying, you know, I agree okay. with you. And they go, what? Yeah, yeah. I said, you're right. People, people never change. I said, you know, the, who I am is little Tony. Who I was as a neo-Nazi couldn't have been more diametrically opposed. The opposite, the, the, the pure polarity of, of my core essence. It wasn't who I was. You know, and little Tony was always, that core essence was always there. And, and, and you're right, it never changed. 
Mm-hmm. And that yeah. often confuses them. <laughs> yeah. So that's why from the perspective, be, becoming more loving and compassionate is about unlearning. It's about unlearning all of those beliefs, those things that those identities that have solidified based on our continuous habits. And that's what I loved about your book. You're like, I made choices. And every choice that I made solidified a thought and belief. And, and then before I knew it, I had this identity, which was so enmeshed within white supremacy. And so to challenge the, the ideology was to challenge the essence of who I was or who I thought I was. And so you kind of had to unlearn everything and really kind of go back to yourself, which must have been challenging, right? Like it's, it's, well, easy, it's easy for us to have this conversation, but you've lived it, right? it's it's challenging but so rewarding at the same time right and and when my life was in direct opposition to who tony little tony was couldn't have been less in flow i you know everything was difficult everything was a challenge and as i've gone to live my life more in integrity with who little Tony is. And I'm not saying I'm perfect and I'm not there yet. This yeah. journey takes, takes a lifetime. Yeah. But the more I get an in integrity, the more I find myself living in flow and the easier life becomes. And even though, you know, we have to look at uncomfortable parts of ourselves and acknowledge uncomfortable things about ourselves as we peel back layers of the onion, that short-term pain versus the what I know is the long-term gain of doing that. And the fear of doing it is is purely psychological in the mind anyways you know it's oh if you open that door it's gonna you're gonna burst into flames like you open the door it's like no that didn't happen and yeah yeah and And i think uh, that's what stops people the fear is it feels real it really feels real to go through so thank you for mentioning living in the flow because I, i wanted to go back to something you had mentioned before which is the belief in lack the belief in not enough, the belief in competition, when we're in survival mode, it's really hard for us to be compassionate and loving for other people because we see each other as competition. But as we start to understand that that, those beliefs aren't true, there's so much opportunity, there's so much potential, there's so much abundance everywhere. We can then shift from that survival strategy to start to say, hey, Tony's not a threat to me because my abundance is mine and there's so much abundance in this world. This is unlimited possibilities. Then we can think, open up to the potential. So from my perspective, living our dreams really is a key part of creating a better world for everyone, more loving and compassionate world. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. And, and you know, the beautiful thing about being, being in flow and living that life is we get to inspire others. You know, people are like, what's your secret? Or, you know, like, you know, Mm -hmm. people that knew me then, or even, you know, know me now, they can't, they can't even imagine me as that other person. Yeah. Because you're not, you're actually not the same identity wise you have shifted. Right. And so it's so those memories must feel like a bit of a dream, right? At times. Yeah, no, there, there's there's certainly a, a sort of an ethereal distance mm-hmm. to them, and yeah. and you know I almost I almost can't believe that I did those things, yeah. but but you know I understand, and you know it was something I just wanted to talk about earlier is that that within compassion we can hold the, the space of perpetrator and victim, you know it, it, it yes it's a it's a it's a, a duality, but within compassion, those two things can be held and healed. 
Yeah, and the, our perspective on the definition of compassion is actually allowing all things to be, which can, which people say, oh, well, then you're allowing all of these negatives to be. It, it's not. It's about the non-resistance and the curiosity and then making a choice. I'm choosing not to. So I understand that these exist, the, the victim, the perpetrator. Who am I going to choose to be every day? Like, who am I going to choose? And knowing that it's a purposeful choice and that I sometimes may falter, but I can still choose again. And so that's where the non-resistance is really key because all of these anti-programs, anti-drug, anti-racism, anti, all you're doing is feeding that same perspective. We're feeding what we don't want to create. And so I think what your book invites us to do is to reimagine, to 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 really think about, okay, what do we want to create? And how do we heal ourselves in order to get there? Yeah, because yeah, a lot a lot of my life was, you know, where you know where we end up as human beings, you know, for you know, forget the specifics of my life. Where we end up as human beings, you know, at, at any given point is it's the totality of the choices we made. And yeah. many of those choices are unconscious. Mm-hmm. Until we decide to, or sometimes the, the, the decision is made for us to to awaken <laughs> to that fact, yeah. and choose to live life from intentionality, mm-hmm. choose to look at every decision. You know, as as I, I talk about in the book, we in life, you know, we we come at, at, at living from one of two places, you know, fear or love, and we get to choose which. We get to choose expansion over contraction. We get to choose connection over disconnection. Mm-hmm. And, and with those choices, we can inspire others. Mm-hmm. And I think it's who we choose to be in every moment of every day. Mm-hmm. That is the power that is going to transform society. It's not some government body or some politician on a white horse that's going to save the day. It's it's who we choose to be in every moment of every day and, and how we inspire others to make conscious choices to choose connection and to choose love over fear. And I think it's 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 millions of little tiny choices. And so we have to look at all of the choices we're making and and conduct ourselves with the that proper intention behind it. Yeah. Oh wow, so powerful. And I think really that is kind of the purpose of this podcast for people to realize that it's it's that everything that every choice that they make is not meaningless. It's not because people want other people to change and systems to change. Oh, once the system changes, things will get fixed. But they're not, they're taking themselves out of the equation when if they're experiencing, they're aligned with it, right? And so they they're consciously contributing to those systems. So that kind of transformation really begins at home with ourselves. And so I think it's really Absolutely. an invitation. It starts yeah. with us. Yeah. It starts yeah. with us. And, and I've recently became a founding partner of an organization in the United States called Starts With Us, startswith.us, that looks to get beyond the polarity that's that's happening in society and to be more compassionate and less judgmental and learn to have dialogue with people we we disagree with. It's worth it's worth checking up. You know, there is there is a there is something sane out there in the middle. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, you know, in, in talking about, before we conclude, talking about compassionate conversations, it's, it doesn't mean that the purpose is for us to change each other. It really is, like you said, understanding. It's about yeah, mutual and, understanding. And, and finding, you know, what we have in, in common with each other. We, we have things we can connect over. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, there, there, <laughs> you know, it's it's once every you know four years we're in the voting booth and we have this disagreement. Mm-hmm. But there's so much more going on in between those times that we have to connect on whether it's you know sports or art or culture or the food or what our kids do or you know what we want for our kids you know those those things don't don't change and and you know when I was coaching the the women's soccer one of the things we did at the beginning of every season is we paired new people with with the veterans and they had to go out and find out you know what are your three three biggest fears of the other person they had to meet in person what are your dreams that kind of thing and they had to come back and 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 you know find three things that you that that you had in common and you know when they had these conversations they came back and they said you know well you know I couldn't believe it you know we were in the same piano class when we were seven and I didn't Mm -hmm. even like this this all of a sudden when we we had these curiosity questions to engage with strangers Mm. all of a sudden you know, it's like six degrees of separation. It's there's it's even incredible. less degrees of connection between between every every person. And then, and once once the people on the team had uncovered those connections, the team bonded way faster, mm-hmm. right? And and the and the and the group, you know, coalesced and felt more connected. And that translated into like we used to call it like hacking the the team because. <laughs> They would perform better on the field and they would pass, yeah. be more willing to pass. And, and the, the Eagles were gone and we didn't you know, have any cattiness. And it, it was really remarkable what can be done with, with little, little exercises just like that in, in community. Yeah, there's more that unites us than divides us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, if Latino we only, if we only, if we relating to, to a white male from the UK. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, I'm starting this kind of, thing where I'm asking all of my guests, you know, from my perspective, you know, whatever this universe source God is, it's all love and it's unconditional love. And so I'm asking all of my guests what they think, what's their definition or what they think unconditional love is. That's, that's a great, that's a great question. And it's, that love is, is it's, it's at a connection level, you know, it's, I've even experienced it at a vibration level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, at an emotional level, but it happens at a level that's below for me, you know, the things that we see that, that are, that are different, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's like namaste, the God in me sees the, sees the God in you. And regardless of where life has taken you and the, and, and the choices made that divinity is, is always there. And, and, you know, and I, and I can, I can connect with that, you know, it doesn't mean I love everything you do yeah, <laughs> or, or everything you say, but I love and respect and connect to the divinity that is within every human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautifully said. Last question. Where can people find you? Tell us about your organization, your website, and about the book or anything you want to share. The the book is The Cure for Hate, A Former White Supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. You can get it on most book sites, thecureforhate.com. You can reach me or Tony at thecureforhate.com if if you want to email me. There's a film I'm featured in, which is on Amazon Prime called Healing from Hate. 
and we've got a film just about to be being submitted to festivals this week. So next year it'll be in festivals. The Cure for Hate, former white supremacist confronts the legacy of the Holocaust. So for that chapter where I go to Auschwitz and and yeah. in wow. an, an atonement and and that that I spent 15 hours with two day over two days with a with a guide that was all documented. So we have a documentary mm-hmm. about that whole trip and the journey of of atonement. Because what started with, you know, and, and you kind of caught on to it earlier too. I started with trying to heal myself. And then mm-hmm. once I'd healed myself to a part, I was like, well, I can heal people that were wounded like me. Yeah. And that led to the start of co-founding Life After Hate and, and helping those people. And now grown my bucket mm-hmm. where I can go back and heal the communities that I've, that I've once harmed. And that is really where my work is at now is going back and undoing the damage that I've done. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. And thank you very much, Tony, for being on this podcast. This was an amazing conversation. Please go out and get The Cure for Hate. It is an amazing, amazing book. And please join us for another episode of the Love and Compassion Podcast with Giselle.